Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking and film theory. As always, in each programme we'll focus on a particular movie, we're going to review it, talk about it and discuss some of the ideas and themes it throws up. And we'll end with our recommendations for films to watch following this week's film. Um, I've been through my recommendations this week and it seems there are a couple that I recommend quite regularly so I will try and deviate from those but um, in general the links can be as close or as tenuous as you want and I'll try and mention Butch Cassidy less. So my name's Rob Mathorn, I am a filmmaker um, in the UK and his name is Sam Knowles, he is a writer and teacher on pop culture and literature. And this week Rob, it was your choice. It was my choice and I went for the 1996 I would almost say modern classic of Scream. Hello. Hello. Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. Uh, I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? I'll do some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Playing a deadly game. Scream, written by Kevin Williamson, directed by Wes Craven, in many ways is a straight-up slasher film. The, a, the town of Woodsboro is terrorised by a slasher in a, in a ghost face mask. He kills teenagers and adults um, across town. Our heroine is played by Nev Campbell, Sydney Prescott, um, who lost her mother a year ago and appears to be particularly hounded by the killer. Um, and from there out, it, it is, I would say, almost straight slash affair. What makes it the, the seminal classic and the, and the renowned film it is, is that what I would call its metatextual postmodernism, um, and we'll come to more of that later on, but basically all the people in the films have seen horror films. They know the conventions of horror films. Mm. They are living in a world where they've seen how these things play out. They aren't the dumb screaming kids of the 80s, or at least they claim not to be. Sam, I'm sure we saw this together back in the 90s. Um, what are your thoughts now? Um, rewatching it, I forgot how gripping it was. Um, it, and it's... I suppose you you say we watched together and we we would have watched it together, but the the way you consume films um in your thirties is markedly different from the way you consume films as a teenager. And Very much so, yeah. I think we we talked before you we talked before about how you can um, you stop and do something else, and I mean if a film is is not grabbing me particularly, then I'll I'll stop it. I'll pause it and do something else. So. A, a boring film will take me three hours to watch, but and you can't do that with a film when you're a teenager. Um, I watched this film like I watched it as a teenager. I did not stop stop to do something else. This this gripped me all the way through. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, ju- I just and it it wasn't it wasn't just the the sort of the slasher nature of it. The fact that the the thrills kept coming, but it was it was how clever it was. Um, it was a reminder of how 
Well, like like you said, to, to get into it very very quickly, this this sort of um, this postmodernism, this self awareness was was very interesting. And <clears throat> my, I mean, the, the thing I love most was the fact that this is a film about horror films. Um, this is not just a film in which people have seen horror films, as you said. Although mm. it is definitely, it's also a film about the construction of a horror film. So you will not just get Randy, for example, commenting on what's going on, what should happen, but you'll also get th- things like with the, with the killer right at the beginning, um, with the the conversation between the killer and Casey. Is it Casey? Uh, yeah, Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore, Casey, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, you'll have a, a conversation there where this this is this whole thing is about how a horror movie works, um, and also whether or not she dies or how she gets treated is a res- as a result of a a game, a particularly grisly game. But game in which the killer sets her movie trivia. Mm. So all the way through this, you get you get ways in which the film is about horror films, and it's not just it's it's not just clever, as as you mentioned. It's it's very very clever. It, it operates on so many levels. We in the sort of what, twenty years since the film came out, we've all seen other films where pop culture references are, are thrown in willy nilly. And it, this film is more than just that. It's more than that they've seen uh, Halloween. It's more than that. The film, as you say, comments on the tropes as they're happening. Um, I've, I, I'm, I'm happy to issue a, you know, we're going to talk spoilers in a um, 20-year-old modern classic film. But there's a scene right at the end in which one of the killers is, in theory, dispatched. And Randy literally says, be careful, this is where they come back for one last hurrah. Mm. And maybe... Three seconds later, he comes back for a last hurrah. But it is no less scary or shocking, or that, that, that jump scare, because you theory know it's coming. Yeah, that, that moment still is a bit of a shock, despite the fact that one of the characters who has been right all along, mm. literally, um, is telling you what's happening. I do think that there's a well, as I have said that it, it plays by traditional horror movie rules. There is some subversion in here, um, and one of the things is around that subversion is uh, uh, Sidney Prescott's virginity. Mm. Traditionally, um, the horror genre, or a bit of the slasher genre, was was sort of portrayed as like a punishing mythic figure that, by doing bad things, is why you got killed. Mm. The, and that's well, that's something that, that Randy talked about exactly. Definitely. And and you know, the, in in sort of the the previous wave of slasher films in the in the eighties, it was the promiscuous, the evil, the dickheads who got killed. It was the good, good and pure girl who resisted the allure of men who managed to survive. Whereas in this, the the scene of Sidney Prescott losing her virginity to um, Billy was something that was played out. And at the same time, you've got Randy saying, you know, that's how you survive by not having sex. And so it's clear, well, this is, you feel that she's then played into the world. Well, now, now she's in trouble. Now, 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 mm. now it's real. And obviously she does, she survives and becomes the heroine of later movies. But that is a, a subversion of that, um, 
of that trope and the film plays a lot with sort of the traditional tropes but does subvert a few here and there um notably and i think this is where we get into real spoiler territory is that there are two killers um the film you all the way through on your first viewing you are presuming there is a single killer because generally there is a slasher films there is a single killer mm. and so when one character is discounted because he has an alibi for something you don't chase that up anymore you can't in your mind you're like well he's got an alibi so it can't be him and then it turns out that that doesn't really matter because there's two of them and that that um kind of is a new twist on a traditional kind of structure shall we say i just wanted wanted to talk about this um this subversion of tropes um because it feels to me like even when the play is when the play got that that's interesting Freudian slip because this does feel like a play throughout i mean there are there are very staged moments you have like the scene in the bathroom with sydney for example feels like a stage play Mm. um her interactions with the other girls and then the killer that that all feels like a play anyway so there there are um there are moments in the film that um f- you could say are buying into horror film tropes um they're going along with something that for example Randy has talked about mm. um and the the film is following that course um but then you have sort of a, a knowing nod to something so it, something like um i don't know the killer creeping up behind randy um and it, he'll be saying to um to jamie Curtis on on screen you want to turn around he's behind you and that feels it, it very much feels like what is happening there is the film is saying, well, this is what you need to do in a horror film. You need to turn round because there is going to be a killer behind you with mm. a knife. But actually, it kind of subverts that because it's sort of playing with that idea. And also, in, in keeping Randy alive, it it sort of subverts that at the same time. So you've got, at the same time, you've got buying into this idea, this concept of, um, of the concept, but you've also got the, the films subtly undermining it as well. I think there's that that tension all the way through between going along with horror film tropes and yet at the same time saying, "No, we're going to step beyond them." Uh, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think just to, to wrap up the re- kind of the review section of the show, I think that it most it must be noted that aside from the sort of the interesting postmodernist. Sort of metatextual elements of of the film it is also a very well made film yeah. uh, it is well written it's well crafted there are you know the film does give you several i suppose red herring characters uh very various sort of characters well he could be the killer he could be the killer and when it's yeah. revealed it does the amazing sort of juggling act of being well that's that makes perfect sense without it being obvious prior to it happening yes yeah i think that that is a a delicate line to follow um but i think it 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 is a well-made film in that respect and i think it's worth kind of mentioning things i think often with these films that we've discussed in the past there are films that are important without being what i consider good 
Yes. Uh, yeah. in the past, the, 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 the sort of milestones in filmmaking that now don't stand up to the time, but you have to appreciate where they came from. Whereas this is kind of both, I think. Like the, the, you can see the, the, the footprint of this film to this day around postmodernist filmmaking, uh, especially in the horror genre, and certainly around um, that kind of thing. But it also remains a good and watchable film. And I think mm. that there is something to be said for that. The, the thing, the the other example I had for this, um, this this weird relationship, and it, it goes to it, it made made me think about about this idea of um, being sort of groundbreaking that you were mentioning. That I was just thinking that you can no longer run upstairs in a horror film without thinking this is a stupid thing to do, and I know this because I've seen Scream. Yes. So it's no longer possible not to have seen Scream um, within a horror film. But that that was something I was thinking of because you have this trope that um, says this is how heroines get killed or you have right at the beginning you have the killer saying when you come outside and investigate to Casey and you know you don't do that because you're going to die. But then you have... Um, Sydney doing both of those, coming outside to investigate and running upstairs, and yet she she survives both of those. So you have that this interesting. This is this is an established trope that Scream is knocking down and saying you can no longer do this without being aware of what you're doing. Mm. But at the same time, Wes Craven in in a funny way seems to have his cake and eat it. He seems to be able, and it may be because this is such a a well-made film, as you say, that he seemed to be able to set up these tropes, knock them down, and yet still have the fun of a film that does both, that buys into the tropes and yet gets around them. So this this film feels not only like a film about horror films, but a standard horror film that works as a horror film. Exactly. That's pretty much it. Exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, 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 it works as a well-made film as well as what it's trying to do with the genre at large. Mm. But I think that there's, as I say, we mentioned the impossible, the, the, the kind of the postmodernist element of this film. But I think that for a lot of people who kind of born or came came into films post that, it's, it's hard to understand the importance of that. And I think if you look at something like The Walking Dead that's on TV now. Uh, there is a, a theory that Walking Dead happens in a world where there aren't zombie films, which is why no one's really prepared for this. Mm. In a, and, yeah. and, and like, we almost felt like we're going back to that that kind of world now. And, and there are these, there are a few films coming out this year. One called The Final Girls, um, another one where modern day characters are thrown back into eighties horror movies. And it does feel like the, 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 the sort of the wave of postmodernists, especially in horror films, that we've kind of ridden for the last 20 years is kind of starting to subside a little bit and people are going back towards a more straight up horror film we look we, we talked about the babadook a few weeks back probably a few months back now um and that is a is a modern horror film that is no way postmodernistic at all no no and there's I mean, um yeah there are there are lots about that where you think this is an incredibly this feels like a very retro film, mm. even though it's obviously a modern horror film. And I think that that's where 
our age betrays us, Sam, in that is it like 20 years old? Is it a modern horror film? You know, that the modern modern horror films, mm-hmm. things like It Follows, <laughs> you know, like It Follows, which is a, a modern film, um, but doesn't, isn't related to kind of any kind of pop culture um, competition. And that there is a, a, a Gen X, Gen Y sensibility to Scream that I believe that the millennial and the post-millennial filmmaking hasn't quite got. It's got a different kind of aesthetic and a different kind of intention. Hmm. Yeah. I suppose it it kind of... It feels like Scream comes at a moment where the paying attention to how a film was made was still a thing. Hmm. And it feels a little bit like now that cinema has gone past that. Um... I'm not. I'm not necessarily saying this is a this is a terrible thing. This is. A, I'm not making a value judgment about it, but it feels a bit like cinema's got to the point in some cases where you can just say, "Okay, this is how a film was made," and we we don't have to be self-referential about it because self-referentiality was for the late '90s, early 2000s, mm. and now we can get on with with making it. You have something like. Um, was that there was a film shot, shot entirely on an iPhone five recently? Tangerine. But there are, is it Tangerine? So yeah. So you have um, you have things like that where the the way in which films are made is completely changing, and it, the, the physicality of a film becomes less important. And this well, this goes back to something that I was thinking about about Scream in that the presence of the media is always very important. Um, Gail Weathers' role in this is very important. Mm. And whether or not the events are put on screen is also very important. Um, and you have something really gets <clears throat> it gets more of a treatment in the sequels where you have supposedly knowing references to the first film in a film within a film in the second one. Yes. Um, not working particularly well, but it's still the same. It's the same idea of, of of the materiality of a film being important. The the way in which media is a part of film being important. I think it's it's uh, it's hard to talk about screen without talking about the, the sequels that followed it in many ways because it does feel that whilst Screen One is this, I think uh, sort of a, a modern classic and very good, the quality drops off pretty sharpish. Once you hit the sequels, mm. uh, I don't know. Have you seen all four, all, all three sequels, Ben? Sam? No, I think I saw the second one. And I thought, well, that's enough of that. I will say that I, I have seen all four, um, and the, the the ongoing story is that the, the, the Scream films are in the world of Scream are made into the Stab films. Mm. Within the world of Scream, in, in there are is a series called Stab based on. So in the third, in the third one. You see them making, I think, making the first remaking the first film in on a film set, mm. and it, and then the, and the fourth one, you see, opens with like the extended crawl of the um the fourth stab film. It gets very confusing and very very self referential, and it kind of mm. eats itself a little bit. I'd say, mm. um. The second one is sort of set in, a, in college, and it feels the, has the feel of a kind of a, a a more traditional slasher film follow-up. But the third one, I said, takes place in the film set of the film of the first one, 
and it gets very self-referential that you've got kills happening in the staged locations of the first one which is which you know is a film set but you also know the larger world is a film set um Mm. and and it gets a little a little too much in the third one i thought and given it has a cameo from jay and silent bob uh which is a, a weird moment in modern culture and then the fourth one opens with this kind of scene. The fourth one opens with someone watching Stab 2 gets killed, which turned out to be the opening of Stab 3 when they get killed, which turned out to be the opening of Stab 4. <laughs> but the fourth one was, it isn't a great film. It, it does deal with that early on and over them going, you know what, that's too far. The film literally says, that's, that's too much now. Gone too far, stop. Mm. And it shifts back to being a much more traditional horror film. Albeit one linked to the uh, the Sydney Prescott's history, mm. um, but I think that uh, it, it, it is hard to discuss these films without without taking into account the uh, the, the ones that followed it, and mm. obviously wider, you know, discussion we've discussed in the past, Reservoir Dogs um, and Tarantino's rise in the nineties, and that kind of pop culture sort of arrival, and this is certainly part of that. This is when when you say pop culture. One of the things we talked about with with the Reservoir Dogs was the way in which the pop culture wasn't necessarily current, and that was why it worked. Mm. It worked because it was Madonna's lighthouse, <laughs> Madonna's like like a version we talked about, not Lighthouse Family, for example. Yes. So and, and there's a massive difference in quality there, but it w- it was something from six or seven years earlier. Rather than the present day, and and this works in kind of the same way that this works as a reference to pop culture because they are talking about Jamie Lee Curtis films, mm. they're talking about slasher films from the late seventies and early eighties. It the, there's something there's some, something about that sort of nostalgic element of of pop culture that makes this this a valid film when it comes to pop culture. Um, and they, it's all it's something you see again and again. You saw with the myth of American Sleepover, for example, where there are very few references to pop culture, and yet it doesn't seem dated because of it. Yeah, I think that there's a, I suppose, a timelessness you're looking to for these sort of things. And whilst the '90s timelessness was achieved by classic cult references, now it seems to be more achieved via. Sort of, it's a, a, a timeless aesthetic that mm. you know that you, that you aren't dating things by clothes. You know, like we talk often about you know, 80s fashions and 90s fashions, and there's a lot of in this film of 90s fashions um, that they they aren't it's hard to see this film set in that era. Whereas the modern day aesthetic, it seems to be much more kind of timeless or just across all time eras. So it's much it's much harder to place when and where it is. So well, we should we should probably end our discussion of timelessness and nostalgia and uh, self-referentiality with some recommendations. Rob, you go first. Yes. So my two recommendations: uh, one is thematic, and one is kind of based on uh, a, a person film. So I'll go with my first one, which is based on the work of, of Nev Campbell. Nev Campbell plays Sydney, has got the lead in Scream and she was also one of the leads in a film two years later called Wild Things 
Now, while things get a bit of a rep, um, infamously for, for for featuring a threesome scene between Kevin Bacon, uh, making uh, Matt Dillon, Nev Campbell, and uh, Denise Richards, but aside from that, it is a very well plotted, very well written crime drama backstabby film set in in the Florida Everglades. Um, it does have it is renowned for, for for some of the sex scenes in it, but beyond that, it is well plotted, it is well thought out, and every time I watch it, I forget at least one of the twists. I think it's it's well working out. The sequels, and there are four of them, are not worth okay. watching in the slightest. <clears throat> um, I say that I've seen the first three, and they were terrible, um, but the first one certainly is is very very good. Very good. My second recommendation is based a bit more thematically and followed Scream four years later. And it's a film that didn't get a lot of press. It didn't get a lot of um, around. To this day, I think it's often very forgotten. Um, it's a film called Cherry Falls, starring Jay Moore and Brittany Murphy. Essentially, a once again, straight-up slasher film. There is a Scottish murderer going around and killing kids in a um, a, a small local town. The Swiss this time being that he's only killing off virgins. And this leads to a town gripped by the fear of being a virgin. And it's a very interesting twist on one trope within the horror film. It obeys all the other tropes of, of a slasher film. But this one twist where he has been targeting virgins. And it's taken to its its black comical conclusion, shall we say. Mm. Um, it didn't get a lot of press. It isn't well known, but I think it's it's a very good addition, especially in the world of screen. We're looking at postmodernist horror um, and uh, changing the genre and playing with the genre. It, it's one of the best. Good. Right. Well, my recommendations. Um, the first one, I cannot for the life of me remember the title. And I phoned Rob and needed a tea, and I asked Google, and it let me down. Um, it took me quite a while, and I finally found it. Um, it's the 1995 film Copycat. Um, the, one of the reasons why it took me so long to find was because I thought it was a Jamie Lee Curtis film. I thought that was going to be the connection, but it's not. It's Sigourney Weaver. Um but it has Sigourney Weaver as, um, uh, I believe she's agoraphobic. Um, so she's, she stays in her apartment um, and gets drawn out of her apartment um, to catch a killer. There are some chase scenes. Uh, it ends with a with a particularly grisly scene in, in a bathroom. Um, and it's surprisingly good. Um, and... In in a similar way to Scream, it's it plays around with conventions. I mean, you have generally you have, and it's not the conventions of a horror film here. It's the conventions of a crime drama. But you have the um, I don't know the the hardball detective who's got some problems, but overcomes the problems in order to solve the case. And in Sigourney Weaver's case, it's a very serious problem right at the beginning, and you think there is no chance of her solving this. So it, it goes, it, it takes that, that trope and says, how do we take this to its logical conclusion? We're going to mean, it's going to mean that she has to be an armchair detective because she can't move. Mm. Um, so it's a very interesting film. 
Um, my second is um, sort of it, it goes along with this idea of um, successful films spawning less than successful sequels, um, and it's a film which I absolutely love. And I saw it again last night. Um, absolute love, and I think it got a lot of the wrong sort of attention. Um, and the sequels play off this. Um, the sequels are therefore not worth watching. Um, it's 2004 film Saw, mm. um, and I believe we've we've talked about this. We might have talked about this before. It's it's a pet topic of mine that that, that Saw is a great film, and it's nothing really to do with the violence. It's a great film because it has a, a great narrative, and it's. There's an absorbing narrative and the the motivation behind what the killer is doing is evident throughout. Um, and it's great because you only find out right at, right at the end. But looking back, you can think, OK, that, that will make sense. The thing with Saw 2, Saw 3, Saw 4, etc., they, they saw, oh, this film was successful with scenes of extreme violence. So that's what the public wants. So... Those those latter five, six, seven, eight, however many films there were, they just they're just torture porn mm-hmm. because they're just the executives saying, okay, this is what makes money. We're going to go ahead with this, but I don't think so. Although though it's a very violent film, I don't think that's the point of the original Saw at all. And I think it's well worth checking out for that reason. I I, would, I know we're, we're kind of out of our. Um review section on screen but i do think it's worth noting quickly that i, I agree entirely with you as saw i think that there's a, a long history of hollywood and i say this as someone who works in that world of learning the wrong lesson for successful movies mm. scream yeah. they looked at them, you know what everyone needs pop culture references and they forget that the reason why scream works is partly that but also it's a really good film mm. and saw is the same they looked at that and they saw complicated torture puzzles well, people love that. Make more of that without going. Actually, what people really liked was the psychological element of of that scene and and that attack. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think there's, there's a long and rich history of uh, Hollywood getting it wrong. Mm. Yeah. But next week, Sam. Next week. Um, next week. <laughs> um, I. My my other half happens to be home from work this week, and uh, I ordered a bunch of films. Rob will know this. I saw him the other day. I ordered a bunch of films to arrive um, when she was here, and I wasn't here to collect them. Um, and she sent me a message saying, "Your horrible films have arrived." Um, and I took exception to this because it's saying, "Well, they're not horrible films." And I thought, actually, um, three quarters of them are about serial killers and the last one was about a post-apocalyptic wasteland so they kind of all are horrible um, but we will we will go with one of these horrible films um, I would like to watch it's a film, film we've mentioned in passing um, in relation to the director who we looked at before um, but I think it's one that I want to focus on I remember enjoying it at the time it's the film Zodiac Okay. if you want to come talk films with us guys you can find us both on Twitter at Prestige Podcast. You can find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. We will see you all back here next week. Bye.
Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.